I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Episode 2, Flame of the Morning. This story's been told before, but it never gets old. At one time, it was nearly lost to history, but in recent years, it's been pulled out and dusted off, and not too late for some of the people who were there to have shared their memories of the experience. I'm drawing from four different books and a number of online resources for this story, because each has its own character and brings something different to the picture. You'll find information on each of the four books, as well as the other resources I've used, in the show notes at atimeforhorses.com forward slash flame of the morning. This is the first part of a three-part story about a real-life war horse who provided critical support to the United Nations troops during the Korean War. This support was a key contribution in holding the line of resistance and, as a result, to the outcome as it stands today. Before I really get rolling, I want to set the scene. We are in Southeast Asia in the middle of the 20th century. One of the outcomes at the close of World War II in 1945 was that the Japanese, who had ruled Korea for 35 years, surrendered and were forced to return to Japan, which is a couple hundred miles away across the Korea Strait. It was agreed that, for the time being, the country should become a trusteeship. North of the 38th parallel, Korea would be occupied by the Soviet Union, and south of that line, by the United States. By 1948, independent governments were established in the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, which was communist, and the Republic of South Korea, which was nationalist. They did not play well together. There was strife from the beginning until, in the summer of 1950, North Korean forces invaded South Korea with the help of the Soviet Union. The United Nations stepped in to back South Korea, but even though dozens of different UN nations supported the effort, the lion's share of the supporting troops were sent by the United States. Over the course of the next year, ground was gained and lost on both sides multiple times. The city of Seoul itself changed hands four times, and the communist Chinese army joined the fight on the side of the North Koreans and the Soviets. In the summer of 1951, peace talks were initiated, and the stalemate began. This was to last another two years. 
fighting settled in. You could say it became entrenched, quite literally, along what became known as the MLR, the United Nations Main Line of Resistance. This was a line running roughly southwest to northeast across the 38th parallel, more or less along the line of the current international border. The truce talks were ultimately located in the village of Panmunjom, a few miles north of the MLR within the territory held by the communist forces. They needed to protect the negotiators, especially the UN negotiators who had to travel through an area of active fighting. So several lines were drawn. They drew a circle around Panmunjom, 2,000 meters across, and both sides agreed there would be no firing into, over, or through the circle. They also mapped out a neutral corridor to allow the UN personnel to travel to and from the meetings north of the MLR. This was 200 meters wide, and together with the circle, created sort of a keyhole-shaped affair that was not to be violated. All of this made it a little tough to get around. You can imagine that both sides use these restricted zones as a sort of shield against incoming fire. The UN forces had other restrictions on radio broadcast, leaflet dropping, and the like, and they were careful not to violate them either, or risk upsetting the prickly enemy and disrupting the truce talks. Most of the weapons available to the ground troops were too inaccurate to risk firing them close to these highly sensitive areas, and the local restrictions kept them from using any aircraft there. The whole neighborhood was a little bit twitchy. Now, central to our story, there was a battalion sector along the MLR to the east of Panmunjom. This sector was made up of several outposts spread across the steep hills along the MLR. They were a key element of the UN defenses, and the Americans gave them creative names. There were Hetty, Marilyn, and Ingrid, named after popular film actresses of the day, Molar, which evidently looked like a giant molar tooth, Toothache, because it caused them some trouble being in the tight spot backed up against the protected circle and close to molar, three fingers, claw, and the boot. There were a number of hills named after just their height, such as hills 84, 144, and 229. And, of course, there were place names, Detroit, Frisco, and the Nevada cities, Carson, Reno, and Vegas. This sector was very tightly connected, and it formed a strong line of defense. The outposts were dug in on the high ground, and in between were fertile valleys which were home to the abandoned rice paddies and fruit orchards that made up no man's land. On top of the hills, the troops could keep an eye on the actions of the Chinese on the hilltops opposite. But holding a hilltop, of course, also offers a tactical advantage in close fighting. The hills themselves were a critical reason that the fighting became so entrenched. In daylight hours, the UN forces, which were overwhelmingly American and Australian, had superiority in the air. And after dark, the communist forces, which really meant the Chinese, had the advantage of numbers, stealth, and stamina. And so it went that this stalemate carried on in tug-of-war fashion, for over two years. 
the North were looking for ways to break through this line and take all of South Korea. They wanted to finish what they had begun in 1950. However, as things stood, each side was holding important territory and nobody wanted to give any ground to the opposition. They were fighting what would come to be called a limited war, meaning that the UN was not seeking to take over North Korea, only to hold on to what they had on behalf of the South until a truce could be negotiated. The same could not be said of the communists. The truce talks were ongoing in fits and starts. In the spring of 1952, they were close to an agreement, which essentially stated that each side would ultimately keep whatever ground was held at the time the truce was finally signed, making it critical for the UN to hold the MLR. If the North were to break through, it had the potential to gain a tremendous amount of territory, in particular the city of Seoul, less than 30 miles to the south of the MLR. So, each of the hills on this line was a critical link in the chain, and the need to hold them all was keenly felt. Now, most of the weaponry that was available in this sector had good range and power, but it wasn't terribly accurate. Mortars, rocket launchers, and tank artillery all fire at a relatively high trajectory, sort of equivalent to what you get from throwing something underhand. One piece that they had was highly effective, though, and it was very beneficial to the effort because of its accuracy. This was the 75mm recoilless rifle. This is a specialized artillery piece that stands on a tripod, and it was developed during World War II as an anti-tank weapon. It can be readily moved by a two- or three-man crew, so it was well-suited to the difficult terrain of the Korean hill country. The rifle has a range of 7,000 yards, about four miles, with remarkable accuracy. It fires a 75-millimeter piercing explosive shell. This was a line-of-sight weapon, used in the daytime when the target could be identified, and it was perfect for shooting from high ground across no-man's land, to the enemy targets opposite. The barrel and breech of the recoilless rifle are nearly seven feet long, and in order to fire without flipping over, the explosive gases are allowed to burst from the rear of the weapon with each shot. This eliminates the recoil that occurs in wheel-mounted artillery like the cannons used during the Civil War. It also eliminates the complex and heavy hydraulic system that absorbs the recoil in modern rapid-fire artillery. The backblast is so great and so hot that the rifle earned the nickname Reckless Rifle, which is also a contraction of its long name, Recoilless Rifle. When it's fired, the backblast of the Recoilless Rifle kicks up a large cloud of debris, Besides being dangerous on its own, this cloud also immediately makes the firing location known to the enemy, which means that the weapon can only be fired four or five times, and then it has to be broken down and relocated before the enemy can return fire. Two or three rifles would be used together, so that while the first firing unit was breaking down and relocating the weapon, the next one would take up the action with covering fire. During Korea, this tactic was called leapfrogging the weapons. But I'm thinking, from the enemy's point of view, it's a little more like whack-a-mole 
trying to return fire against a moving target. Because someone has to be a little reckless to associate with this kind of weapon, the nickname was extended to the anti-tank units that deployed it as well. The recoilless rifle, or RR platoon, was a unit in a marine anti-tank company, under the command of the regimental commander. They were sent wherever they were most needed, and they might be assigned for a day or a few hours to one of the three infantry battalions within the regiment. In the late summer of 1952, the 1st Division 5th Marine Regiment's anti-tank platoon got a new commanding officer in the person of Lieutenant Eric Pedersen. He was the kind of leader everyone would hope to have in a war like this, and he was very aware of the circumstances surrounding the use of the recoilless rifle. The rifle itself weighed 115 pounds assembled, and because of the tactic of firing four or five shells and relocating, the weapon had to be moved every few minutes as long as the firing lasted. This would be done by the three men assigned to each gun. This was nothing compared to the work done by the ammunition carriers. The 75-millimeter shells for the reckless rifle weighed 20 to 23 pounds apiece, and generally, the men carried two per trip. Only the biggest and strongest guys could carry three rounds comfortably for any kind of distance. In one operation, the crew set up a firing position on Moeller, with their backs against the protected circle from which they could fire into the enemy's supply depot in Kamandong without having to continually relocate the rifle. The ammunition supply point, or ASP for this position, was on Command Outpost 2, or COP2, the farthest west of the command outposts in the sector. Of course, they could have hauled the ammunition by jeep to within a few yards of the position by using the corridor, but this was against the rules of engagement, so the carriers had to carry the rounds on their shoulders, making each trip on foot. The route from the ASP to the firing position meant a half-mile hike down a rutted road and then crawling under barbed wire. Then they crossed 400 yards on a narrow dike across a rice paddy. On this crossing, they were in full view of the enemy, a quarter mile to their right, protected only by the corridor a quarter mile away on the left. The protected zone worked pretty well as a shield, but it was still a little nervous-making for the guys carrying the ammunition. After the dike, they had to cross a seven-foot ditch with more wire on the far side than climb a steep section up to the top of the ridge. They'd work their way through a rough section of brush and second-growth trees and finally reach the gun position. Now, if you imagine the gun firing at three rounds a minute and the guys carrying two rounds per trip, the carriers had their work cut out for them. This warrior dash was performed over and over again to keep the weapon firing. Remember, these guys were carrying 40 to 50 pounds of ammunition in addition to their battle rattle, all of the personal gear and small arms that they had to carry for self-protection. In the end, that particular operation was very successful. However, the squad was pretty drained after a day's shooting. The Marines had the right weapon, but they needed a better way to supply it. Enter Lieutenant Eric Pedersen. 
After a few months of this sort of action, it became apparent to him that they needed an ammunition carrier that could function in this sort of terrain. He got permission from the battalion commander, and in very short order, was off to see about a horse. At this time, they were in a reserve position at Changdan, away from the front line. This was the battalion command outpost that covered the line from COP2 on the left to Bunker on the right. They had room there to set up a place for a horse to live and time to train it to carry ammunition. Pedersen was compromised by some recent leg wounds, but with two non-commissioned officers, a jeep, and a borrowed trailer, he headed in the direction of Seoul's Sinseldong racetrack. You know, I found it interesting that in the early 1950s, the Marine Corps had so many men who knew more than just a little about horses. At this point, there were three or four guys on board with the project who were legitimate horsemen. Pedersen even sent home to his wife to have her send a pack saddle, which she knew where to find, readily obtained, and was able to ship out. I just can't imagine all that happening today that easily. At the racetrack, the Marines found and were able to purchase a beautiful little racehorse who is said to have been called Achim Hai, which means Flame of the Morning. She was the equine version of a red-headed female. Horsemen would know her as a sorrel or chestnut-colored mare. Imagine, say, Reba McIntyre with four feet and a long face. She was fairly mature, a three-year-old, destined to be a racehorse, and as healthy and athletic a horse as you were likely to find in Seoul in October of 1952 just what the 5th Marine Regiment needed. As I said before, the story of this remarkable little horse has been told many times, and rightfully so. But the story of her life before the Marines comes to us from only one source, and we know very little about how it actually happened. You see, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Gear was the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion at the close of the war and he came to know the horse in that capacity. He was impressed by her and spent many hours documenting the story through conversations with some of the men he was serving with then who had lived it. He was also stationed in country at the time, and so it's been assumed that when the fighting ended, he was able to travel into the city of Seoul, or what was left of it, and interview the fellow who had sold the horse to Pedersen. He planned at the time to write an article for the Saturday Evening Post to let America know about this remarkable horse. And indeed, he did do that. Gear admitted to having embellished the details of the horse's early life, though, and he also acknowledged, frankly, the difficulties in communicating across a language barrier. In the end, the legend that rose out of this situation doesn't fit tightly with the historical facts, but it's a great story, and not surprisingly so. Gear was a published author. His most successful book was a fictionalized account based on a true story from World War II, in which he had served. So, I take what he's written about this story in that context. 
And I'm only sorry that so much of the factual history is conflated with the legend as Andrew Gere told it, because I don't think the true story is any less remarkable, and I wish we knew more. I'm sorry to say that Lieutenant Colonel Gere passed away in 1957, so his part of the story mostly comes to us from his book and the stories he told his family. Korea has been called the Forgotten War, and trying to make sense of things when so many of the events got lost along the way helps me to understand why that's so. Today, we have much better access to information. An employee of the Korea Racing Authority by the name of Alistair Middleton writes a blog at korearacing.live with historical articles, and the command diaries from the war are now declassified and published online, making it easy for me to sort through the stories to help clarify things. I'll tell you something, though. From all the reports I've read in putting this story together for you, Korea was not forgotten by the guys who were there and were lucky enough to make it out alive. Gear published his book, Reckless Pride of the Marines, in 1955. There's a link to it in the show notes. His tale relates how the mayor, owned by a young man with the fictitious name of Kim Hook Moon, came to be in the racing stable in Seoul when the Marines drove in. This is a story unto itself, and it's worth reading. The legend begins that Kim had owned a renowned racehorse named Ah Chim Hai during the 1940s, and that when her racing career ended, he had had her bred. She died of a fever after foaling, but the filly was identical to the mother, and so he gave her the same name. There is a section in the story about the invasion in 1950, and some more about the beginning of the war. And it ends up such that Kim's sister, who had taken care of him for many years, was injured by a landmine and had need of a prosthetic leg. The family could not afford the cost, and Achim Hai was the only possession Kim had that could be sold so his sister would be able to walk again. And so, with tears in his eyes, he sold his precious flame to Lieutenant Pedersen for $250. It was logical that the first place the Marines went in their search for a horse was to the racetrack. Before the invasion in 1950, horse racing had been a very popular pastime in Korea. As a matter of fact, the day that the North Koreans invaded, the race card at Sinseldong was run to its conclusion before the attendees left the track in spite of the leaflets the communists dropped over the stands announcing their invasion. They called it a liberation. The Korean version of horse racing was a little different from what gear would have been familiar with in the United States, and not just because they raced clockwise. You might be interested to know that Korean racehorses were all mares, female horses. Most distinctively, though, the horses that ran were something known as a Jeju horse from the island of Jeju off the Korean coast, where horses had been bred for over a thousand years. They didn't look like any sort of racehorse the Marines would have found at home. In any case, the Marines knew that the track was being used as a military airfield, and they knew that there were some horses living there. So that's where they went. 
Another one of the sources I'm drawing on for this story is the book They Called Her Reckless, written by Janet Barrett. There's information about it in the show notes for episode two at atimeforhorses.com forward slash flame of the morning. She's nailed down some information about what happened with horse racing during this time, and there are a few important considerations. Barrett describes what became of the Chosun Racing Club, which originally ran the track at Sinseldong, like this. Quote, Post-World War II, the Korea Racing Authority, KRA, continued the work of the Chosun organization in managing the sport. At the Seoul racetrack, it owned all the ponies. There was no prize money, and track personnel, including trainers, jockeys, and grooms, were paid by the KRA. End quote. Now, it's possible that the person Gear called Kim Hook Moon was a trainer at Sinseldong when the invasion happened in 1950, and that he fled south with his family and his favorite horse to Pusan for a year, while wave after wave of fighting decimated the city of Seoul, and then he returned later to rejoin the KRA efforts to restart racing or it may be somewhat less extraordinary. Either way, we can be quite certain that he didn't support his family with prize money, since there wasn't any. Alistair Middleton reports in his blog that indeed a very popular racehorse named Achim Hai did run during the 1940s, but there's no information on whether she ever had a foal, nor whether the foal ever returned with the race trackers to Sinseldong. In any case, the people that surrounded this particular red horse had every expectation that she was going to be a racehorse, and so she would have, except for the progression of the war. Barrett continues, and I'm picking up here after the UN forces retake the capital from the communists the first time, quote, Unprepared for what they would find, when racing officials saw the track, they were appalled. They reported total devastation, the buildings destroyed, the safe looted, and the horses gone. It was presumed the horses were either taken north after the initial invasion or killed at the time or when the U.N. forces retaking the city bombed the depot. Still, hope lingered. The KRA made arrangements for a new group of Jeju ponies to be shipped up from the south, almost as quickly Communist China entered the war, standing by its declaration to come to the defense of North Korea if UN forces pushed north. With that, chances for a quick end to the war were dashed, and it went on for another 33 months. End quote. Whatever brought this particular horse to Seoul, there would never again be horse racing at Sinseldong. The race trackers, as horse people will do, hung tight to the track. I can imagine that they did what they could to keep the ponies fed and exercised as much as circumstances would permit. I'm also certain that Lieutenant Pedersen knew through word of mouth that there were horses to be found at the Sinseldong airfield. Asian cultures have had very close relationships with their horses dating back to ancient times. As a matter of fact, when we study the influence of horses in human history, one of the first cultures of real interest is the Mongolian steppe people. 
Horses in Asia, and Korea was certainly no exception, were used widely for hunting, making war, farming, transportation, and communication over many centuries. The horse's milk, meat, hair, and hide became essential materials to traditional Mongol life. But the widespread use of horses for covering ground was like the invention of the jet airplane. It suddenly made the world much smaller. Typical Asian horse breeds were not as big as those that developed in Europe. The people were shorter in stature, sure, but also their weapons were lighter, their military tactics more agile and much faster, and the horses were integrated into their lives much more closely than in most of Europe. Both the nomadic and farming peoples of Asia truly lived in what we call today horse cultures. By the time we get to the mid-20th century, humans were less dependent on horses for transportation and the like, but the horses themselves hadn't yet really begun to change, especially in places like Eastern Asia, where there was not so much reason to. Now, it seems I should take a moment here to explain how we measure horses. Equine height is typically described in an increment known as a hand, or four inches, measured where the neck meets the back, the bony part we call the withers. A 15-hand horse, pretty average in size, is thus 15 times 4, or 60 inches in height at the withers, 5 feet, or about a meter 5. This measurement is expressed in hands plus inches. The dividing line between a horse and a pony, regardless of breed or type, is generally considered to be 14 hands 2 inches, or 14 and a half hands. Horsemen call that 14.2, and in America it's written 14.2. Even though it's 14 and a half hands, it's not 14.5 because we don't use the fraction. There's no 14.4 because that's 15 hands. It's a little confusing until you get used to it, but that's the way we do it. The mare that Pedersen bought for the Marines was small. From the pictures we have, her height has been estimated at anything from 11 hands up to 14 hands, or 44 to 56 inches, and first-hand accounts vary. I've reconstructed a few of these scenes with ponies of different body types within that height range, and with them standing next to people of different heights. There is also a famous picture of the horse standing next to a recoilless rifle, which we know to be 82 inches in length. It's not scientific, but she did live in the age of photography, which helps. I will tell you this for sure. There is no way that this mare was 14 hands. Even if the U.S. military was populated by giants in the 1950s, we know the size of the rifle. My best guess is that she was between 12 and 13 hands, or around 50 inches tall at the withers. She was legitimately a pony, but you'd better not tell her that. Now, to confuse the matter further, there are breeds that are expected to mature to pony height and breeds that are expected to be horse-sized. Some breeds, Icelandic and Mongolian horses among them, are traditionally named and thought of as horses, but rarely measure up to the 14-2 standard. There are others that are called ponies, 
but may mature at greater than 14.2. So the terms pony and horse have a sort of gray area of meaning that you have to take from context. However, in Korea in the 1950s, they were all called horses, even though they were all very small. Today, Korean horses fall into three main groups. These were not all in residence at the end of World War II. First, there's the Jeju horse. In size, it's technically a pony. The Jeju was developed through crossbreeding of the small native Korean horse and a large group of Fergana horses that were imported in the late 13th century. These Fergana horses are ancestors of today's Akalteke horse, which is known for both speed and endurance. Legend has it that the Fergana horse could gallop all day, and it's well known that the nomadic Mongolian lifestyle was lived for thousands of years, from dawn to dusk, on the back of a galloping horse. Nomadic, for these people, did not mean meandering. There's a link in the show notes to some images of Chinese art depicting the Fergana horse. It's stylized, but if you go look, you'll get the picture. The Jeju horse of today was developed on Korea's Jeju Island, and they are hardy and hardworking little equines. In general, animal breeds that develop in island habitats tend to be smaller and hardier across the board, feed being limited by terrain and weather being subject to maritime variations, small size and hardiness are very helpful characteristics, lending toward survival of the breed. For examples of this, you can look at the Shetland and Connemara breeds, as well as our friend, the Jeju. Another general principle at play is that the more consistent and narrow the characteristics of a breed might be, the more they all look and act the same, the less robust they tend to be. As with many breeds developed through outcrossing, the Jeju seems to have retained their hardiness while sacrificing some consistency of what we call type. This is one of the basic principles of breeding. Line breeding breeds true, while outcrossing makes the breed more hardy, but sacrifices a little consistency. The Jeju horse is used for farm work, riding, and carrying loads. In some places, they are described as being typically about 11 or 12 hands in height, but others say they aren't all so matchy-matchy. There are smaller, stockier ponies that resemble the Shetland, Welsh, and Icelandic-type pony, and there are some that are a little taller and rangier-looking, more leggy, with a shorter back and longer neck, like a small-sized horse as opposed to a pony. These look more like the Connemara and Moorland ponies of the British Isles, but not so big. This variation in types can be found among the limited number of Jeju horses still found today on their island home. The second horse breed found in Korea today are imported thoroughbred horses brought to the country for racing. These are genuine horse-sized horses, rarely under 14.2. Prior to World War II, there were very few of them, if any, and even the Japanese hadn't yet really established thoroughbred racing by then. According to the Korea Racing Authority, the thoroughbred was not introduced to the country until the 1970s, when Western-style paramutual racing was introduced, and the current horse racing industry began to flourish. 
Thoroughbreds as a breed are known for being sensitive and responsive. Under some circumstances, this can be a negative quality, but on the racetrack or the polo field, they have excelled above all other breeds due to their indomitable courage and persistence. They don't give up. It's something horsemen call heart. Last, we have what is known today as the Hala horse. This breed was developed in Korea by crossbreeding the native Jeju with the thoroughbred. They are in between in size and appearance, and while I've never met one, I've known many hardy pony breeds, many thoroughbreds, and many crossbreds. One of the nicest things about a part thoroughbred horse is that they generally mix the temperament of both breeds. They are social and make wonderful companions, but their courage and heart come through in the clutch. If their pony breed crosses, they also will often have a real cleverness and independence of spirit as well. In Korea today, the Hala numbers about three to one over the other two breeds combined. They are faster than the Jeju Pony, and at the track on Jeju Island, there are races held for each of the two pony breeds separately. It's pretty easy to point to the Hala and say, that is the horse we see in the pictures. However, again, we are talking about a breed that really didn't exist before the 70s, when the thoroughbred first came to the country for racing. It just doesn't make sense. The pony-type Jejus are generally smaller and have somewhat coarser features than Pedersen's new horse, as well as commonly having a thick, fluffy mane and tail, short neck and legs, and a longer body and bigger head. I don't think that means she can't be a Jeju, though. Remember, the Jeju has this interesting range of body types. Here is where the problem comes in. This new recruit was to give distinguished service to the Marines, and when the tale is told, she has always been referred to as a Mongolian horse. Now, my deduction is no more nor less valid than anyone else's, because there is no way to roll back the clock and collect the missing details, but I'm pretty sure that they didn't think the mare was truly Mongolian at the time. Rather, I suspect this may have been a colloquial term for a locally bred animal of uncertain breeding, and I'd like to give more credit than that to whoever was her breeder. She was destined for a career as a racehorse, but if she had any significant amount of thoroughbred blood, it was crossed in before World War II, or between the two wars, by Korean horse breeders. Odds are good, if they did that, they knew what they were doing. Not uncertain breeding, just lacking registration papers, like every other horse in Korea at the time. There are some published genetic research studies that make some pretty clear distinctions between the DNA of the native Korean horse and that of the thoroughbred. It also distinguishes between the Jeju and the Mongolian horse. These two breeds are related, but they are not the same. These studies report that there was a significant outcross to the Mongolian horse via the Fergana importation. Nobody was keeping closed stud books to restrict crossbreeding in the 13th century. The mixing of breeds 50 or 1,000 years ago was much more pragmatic than that. They bred to get a horse that was useful to them. 
When we take the information as a whole, it's pretty apparent that there really is no other logical explanation. The way I see the story, odds are pretty good this mare was a Jeju horse. However it happened, she was bred and trained for racing, which was one of the main things the Koreans did with their horses in the 40s and 50s. The things that I find distinctive when I look at the images of the young horse in question are things that horsemen look for in characterizing an animal's conformation. And I think part of the confusion is that she has the body type and characteristics of a horse. She has a short, broad back and broad loins, standing over a long underline. She has broad and prominent withers. Her crest is well-muscled and her arching neck is set well up on her shoulder. The mare shows a long, sloping shoulder that ties well back into her withers. She has a medium-long croup and a slightly uphill body balance, and flat but balanced musculature throughout. Her mane and tail are moderate rather than thick. During her deployment, she had a buzz cut or roached mane. Even in later pictures when she was older, she was much rounder, but still had the same general conformation type. Whatever breed this horse was, I look at her and think, with this sort of conformation, she would be well prepared to travel at a modest pace for a very long distance. If I were looking for a riding horse to spend a whole day on, I'd pick her in a New York minute. As a horseman, Eric Pedersen knew what the heck he was buying when he chose this horse, and I'm willing to bet there was something in her eye and the way she greeted him that told him she was the right horse for the Marines. In those days, any horseman worth his salt would also have known enough to take a look inside her mouth to estimate her age. We can get a pretty accurate estimation of age up until a horse is about seven. He would have seen from the number of adult incisors and which ones were still baby teeth that she was about three and a half years old, just about the right age to start a horse in meaningful work. Now, imagine this. If you are familiar with handling horses, you might have trouble picturing a three-year-old racehorse of any size or breed who had never been transported in her life allowing herself to be walked by a complete stranger onto a tiny cargo trailer with open wooden sides and hauled over a rutted country road into a war zone. But that was just the beginning. There are horses out there who react first and ask questions later. They have hair-trigger reflexes, and you'd better not be in the way when they pull the trigger. There are other horses, at the opposite end of the spectrum, who stop, look, and think through something before they react. That doesn't mean they can't move right quick when the need arises, though, and they are generally fast learners, incredibly clever, and persistent as all get out. In today's equestrian vernacular, we actually call them bomb-proof. That is the kind of horse Pedersen had just bought. On top of that, she had spent a few months to as long as a year, we don't really know, living in a stall backed up to a military airfield in the middle of a country at war. She had certainly been inoculated against experiences that would have most modern-day horses running for the hills as fast as they could go. The little mare was the right age, with the temperament, 
the confirmation, and the experience to prepare her for anything that would be asked of her. It's as though she were born and raised to be the heroine of the Korean War. And so, as they traveled northward toward Changdan, I can't imagine what was going through that little mare's mind. One thing she knew for sure was that her life was about to change. When they arrived in camp, Pedersen already knew who in the unit had what it took to help the new recruit fit in. He first asked the soft-spoken PFC, Monroe Coleman, to be in charge of looking after the little mare, and Platoon Sergeant Joe Latham was appointed as her trainer, or drill instructor. Here's the way Gear described it, quote, Okay, Joe, you're the DI. Put her through boot camp. Shouldn't it be hoof camp, Lieutenant? Guess you're right. What's her name? I don't know. From the darkness, a voice said, Reckless! Let's call her Reckless! There was immediate approval. No horse feed being available, Reckless was taken to the mess tent. Her first marine meal consisted of a loaf of bread and uncooked oatmeal. End quote. The recoilless rifle platoon had some work ahead of them. They had to find suitable food for their new recruit, as well as build her a suitable bunker and a pasture. The only brush they had was a boot brush, but it did the trick, and in short order, she was gleaming. Now, horses are naturally herd animals, and as long as they are accepted by the members of the herd, they readily form close bonds and are highly motivated to do as the herd does for survival. Many of today's equine athletes, because they typically live in stables and don't have much of a chance to form herd relationships, generally herd with the people who handle them. This particular horse was certainly no different. Whatever her first couple of years had been like, probably living in a normal herd with other horses, but even if that was different, she had come to the city and taken up the life of a future racehorse. She had learned to live in close quarters with people, had a good working relationship with them, and had probably been started under saddle in preparation for the return of racing to the capital city. In camp, Reckless settled in quickly. She liked the personal contact and was very interested in the new menu. She found apples and carrots quite tasty, as well as her first Hershey bar, known to the troops as Pogi Bait. When her pasture was complete, she ran around it with great exuberance. Before long, she had a bunker of her own built to military specs, a thick bed of rice straw, and all the barley and sorghum feed she would need. And she had plenty of new friends. According to Gear, the battalion surgeon examined the recruit and certified her, quote, physically fit and capable of performing the duties of a Marine of her age and rank, end quote. And thus began her basic training, hoof camp. Latham began with the daily practice of getting into and out of her new three-foot-by-six-foot open-topped Jeep trailer, and she took to it readily. On the daily walks in the hills, she learned to be cautious about wire, both barbed wire and communications wire. As horses will generally do, she would look things over carefully before proceeding. A horse will always watch its step if it's allowed the time to do so, 
and Latham clearly wanted her to learn to find her own way and think for herself. Even so, she showed great trust in the people she believed in. He taught her to kneel and lie down on command in case she was under fire without shelter. He would drop to the ground and put his hand on her hoof, and she would drop right with him. As herd animals, horses are also good at mimicry. When the lead horse in a herd does something, the other horses quickly figure out that that is the thing to do. This serves herd animals well when they need to dig through snow for dormant seed plants or fallen fruit, or if they need to dig a hole in damp ground so it will fill with water to drink. In this way, Reckless learned about incoming. Latham would call incoming and sprint to her bunker. It didn't take her long to figure out that incoming meant she should take shelter in the nearest bunker, whether it was hers or not. In short, Private Reckless learned nearly everything she needed to know in order to fulfill her duty as ammunition carrier. Reckless also learned a little bit about base camp. She learned where the mess tent was. She learned that she liked bacon and eggs, coffee, and Coca-Cola, and she learned that it was much warmer inside the tents with stoves where the people hung out. I had to laugh, reading the many different stories about Reckless and her voracious appetite. It made me think about feeding my own horses. When you figure out the cost of feeding a horse, you use some round figures. A horse eats 2-3% to of its body weight in food each day. So I look at the pictures of Reckless, and I estimate she weighed at least 500 pounds or so if she's 12 or 13 hands. If she ate oatmeal and fruit from the mess, she would eat less, accounting for the higher calories. But even so, her body would need 10 or 15 pounds of food every day just for maintenance. Add to that if she's getting any exercise. When they say eats like a horse, that's what we're talking about. So imagine how the mess sergeant reacted when that little mare showed up and started eating for a half dozen men. It was probably frustrating for the Marines involved that they had to wait for the arrival of the pack saddle, which took more than two months. I would say this was yet another stroke of luck. Nowadays, folks who start young horses to train for distance riding competition are looking at an early goal of maybe 25 to 30 miles a day, at a modest pace, maybe 5 or 6 miles per hour. They do that with a rider plus a saddle that weighs around 20 pounds. They'll usually set their goal at 8 weeks or so from the start of training to get to 25 miles in a day. Now, the distance riding trainer also knows that the steeper the terrain is and the heavier the rider, the slower they will need to go in training. In any case, the young horse will start out with a few miles per day at a walk with a rider, working five or more days a week, and increasing the effort and distance gradually over time. At that pace, the goal of 25 miles in a day can be reached within a couple of months. Of course, we know that now. In 1952, it wasn't exactly common knowledge. But the long wait for the pack saddle gave Reckless plenty of time to become adjusted to the regular workout schedule, the long days, the hill climbing, and the monkey-see, monkey-do training routine. Once the pack saddle arrived, Reckless was able to complete her basic training. They started with four rounds of ammo per load, but she was eventually able to carry six, double that of a strong Marine. She took to the work quite cheerfully, and it was clear that basic training for Reckless was done. 
They awarded her rank, actually, Private First Class. The only remaining question was how she would handle being under fire. Horses aren't really known for handling sudden explosions well, so this was a pretty big remaining question. PFC Reckless joined her first fire mission when the recoilless rifle was put to use firing into an area known as Hetty's Crotch. I'll let Andrew Gear describe it. Quote, the distance from Changdan to the shooting site was two and a half miles. The first portion of the way was shielded by the spine of hills which run eastward from Hill 229. At the destroyed hamlet of Kwakchan, a turn to the north led onto a road that was narrow and rutted. A portion of this was navigable. The final 500 yards to the ridgeline was a steep, breathtaking drag on foot. Of further interest to the move into firing positions was a 600-yard portion of the so-called road north of Kwakchan. This section was under enemy observation from towering Yoke. Yoke was one of the nearby hills. Depending on the Chinese mood of the moment, the road was brought under fire when the enemy observers saw too much traffic moving northward on it. While not many hits were recorded, the passage over this stretch did lend a degree of anticipatory breathlessness. Pedersen's based his vehicles at ten-minute intervals, so as not to alarm the trigger-fingered enemy. The first vehicle carried the weapon and the squad. The next bore Reckless and her trailer, while the last brought the ammunition. The passage of the exposed road was made without incident. Sergeant Ralph Sherman and his gun crew began the stiff climb with the heavy weapon. She ain't gonna get shook, Sarge, Coleman promised. He took the lead rope in hand and began the climb. They soon overtook the gun crew. Sherman directed Coleman to offload at the first firing position and to return to the truck for another load. Pedersen and Barry had preceded the party and were on the ridgeline searching out targets with the infantry commander. End quote. The recoilless rifle could only be fired four or five times before the enemy would identify its location from the backblast and return fire, which took about four to six minutes. If the weapon was relocated quickly, the return fire would fall in the spot they had just left. This way, two or three units would hopscotch around, firing and avoiding the counterfire. Gear continues describing the start of the day's shooting. According to his version of events, Corporal Coleman was with Reckless, and Sergeant Sherman was at the gun. Quote, Speed and teamwork were the key to a successful shoot. It was breathless, scrambling work over the difficult terrain, and in the excitement of the moment, the little red horse was forgotten. Coleman had delivered his first load and was returning with the second when Sherman opened fire. Wham whoosh! The hills bellowed and rocketed with the roar. Behind the weapon spurted a flume of dust. Though weighted down with six shells, Reckless left the ground with all four feet. Her eyes went white. Take it easy, Reckless, Coleman begged. Wham whoosh! Sherman was on target and driving them home. Reckless went into the air again, but not quite so far. More soft talk from Coleman. She snorted and shook her head to stop the ringing in her ears. Wham whoosh! She shook as the concussive blast of air struck her, but she did not rear. She stood closer to Coleman, 
trembling slightly, but the white was gone from her eyes. She began to take an interest in the actions of the gun crew. Wham-whoosh! Her reaction was little more than a jerk of her head. End quote. Reckless was doing what any good herd member would do, and what Coleman and Latham already expected. She was looking to her herd mates for guidance in how to behave. She trusted these guys, and if they weren't spooking, she didn't see any reason to either. That said, many horses wouldn't have made it past the first shot. They knew their recruit, and knew what it would take to keep her calm. That was the one and only day that Reckless ever spooked at an explosion. The incoming counterfire made Reckless nervous once it started, but she and Coleman made half a dozen trips from the ASP up and down the hillside, packing four to six rounds of ammunition per load. During the last series of shots, she stood to the side, nosing around at her feet. She had acquitted herself well. That evening, she joined Gunny Latham for a beer, as would become her custom, and when it rained during the night, she left her bunker and joined the staff NCOs in their tent. They covered her with a blanket, and she slept soundly by the stove. And so began the story of Private First Class Reckless, Pride of the Marines. I really hope you're liking this story so far. I'll be back in a few weeks with the second part of Reckless's story, in which our little red-headed heroine earns her stripes. In the meantime, you know what makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So, please do the three R's, go to your podcatcher of choice, and rate, review, and recommend the show. If you're listening to the show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this show at atimeforhorses.com forward slash flame of the morning. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, welcome aboard. You can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for step-by-step instructions. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time. <laughs>